flag for the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My oh High fly ball into right field. She is gone. Oh, drives one. like this setup here guys I, I really like this setup i do we got two from seattle and a salt lake we got a salt lake in the house now all we need now is like a i don't know like a like a toad suck arkansas show like like a toad we need a we need a weird town we got a couple of seattle so like how about suck. a toad suck? and we'll be set here on the show maybe then will be interesting jason churchill here with joe Doe. we'll explain the salt lake thing next week but yes uh it's true. There is a such thing as Toad Suck Arkansas. It's a real That sounds place. like an OnlyFans account. It's it's <laughs> well, hey, hey, how do you know what I'm doing in my free time, Joe? Like you don't oh, you don't know, man. Can we No, like that's a real else? thing. It was uh it was how the locals described steamboat captains back in the day cuz they tie up their boats on the Arkansas River. They'd wait for the water to rise to the right depth and while they did, they would just drink up all the liquor. And the locals would say they're sucking it up and swelling up like a toad. So toad suck. True story. I will not apologize for telling the truth. I just won't do it. That's lovely. <laughs> you got nothing else because it's it's pretty weird. That's All right, lovely. Joe. Uh, now that you're a little bit smarter than you were 60 seconds ago, what do you want to do today? I got some ideas, but you want to talk baseball? How's that? Let's do a whole a whole CWS episode for different reasons yeah we kind of kind of sort of can do that yeah the chicago white Sox is the first thing on the agenda they've had an interesting off season uh they made a few trades few decisions let some players go uh but to date they've yet to do anything i think really anyone would consider large like fairly significant but nothing huge really in either direction sending players out or bringing players in we'll go over that today uh we'll talk about our favorite under the radar free agent signings and there's a lot of places we can go here too which is going to be fun so i got a couple uh, i'm sure joe has a couple uh also because joe updated his 2024 draft boards earlier in the week was that earlier in the week or was that last yeah, week joe I, i'm a losing long track. Week. <laughs> it's yeah. been a long week it, it has been a long week. uh but what i want to do is i want to see where your opinions and your place on some of these players and where you sit on some of these players and the draft as a whole. If there are some things there where for you and for maybe the rest of the industry, they just don't match up, whether it's an individual player or it's the class or it's the strength of a class, weakness of the class, whatever that is, there's got to be a couple of things that are really interesting right now where you're just in one place and it seems like most everyone else is in another. So uh, we got a week until the D1 season starts. Um, that'd be an interesting conversation for, uh, for this week, uh, before we, uh, before we get started, a couple of quick reminders, uh, speaking of the website, futurestarseries.com. If you want to know which college prospect handles the breaking ball, the best, or which college prospects handle the breaking ball is best. It's basically where art thou breaking ball murderers, right? Uh, you, if that's your question, that's what you're asking. Head to futurestarseries.com because Joe Doyle has the answers to that. And also next week, I'm going to start dropping Joe's team by team top 30s. And we're starting with the American League West. And if you want the whole schedule, we're going to go American League West, NL East, 
Then the two central divisions, which are not Snorfests, by the way, at all. Those are two very interesting uh, divisions from a uh, farm system and prospect standpoint. And then we'll close it out with the American League East and the and the National League uh, West. Uh, the White Sox, Joe. The damned White Sox. I said it, the damned White Sox. Because I actually commend Chris Getz here. He takes over as GM. They make all those wholesale changes. They were, what, 61 and 101 last year. We all could see it coming. Um, but it doesn't really make the kind of sense. They're off season so far. It doesn't really make the kind of sense that I expected it to make. You get new leadership, the bad season, a lot of mid-tier contracts on that roster. There's really not what I think anyone would really call a, a young core, a good young core there at this point. They're not very deep. There's not a lot of impact. Um, they basically have two all-stars in Dylan Cease and, and Luis Robert Jr. What are they? Declined options on Liam Hendricks and Tim Anderson. Uh, and after the trade deadline last year, I think this is important as well. They did get Jake Eater for Jake Berger, which I loved. Uh, yeah. Kendall Graven for Corey Lee, Lance Lynn and Joe Kelly for a couple of minor league arms. The Giolito and Ronaldo Lopez deal to the Angels. What was that? Kai Bush and Edward Caro? Yeah. That's I mean, a really interesting yeah. deal too, right? I mean, listen, it, this has gone from a back third of Major League Baseball farm system to probably somewhere in the 12 to 16 range. And mm-hmm. it's not like they've added impact. Like there's not a lot of high ceiling guys that mm-hmm. that – I see that they've acquired, but I love that Jake Eater deal. Oh, um, one, man. man, one of the things, that, so that was the name that everybody was talking about after the 2022 draft that was like, I, I think every, it, it seems to me and talking with scouts and front office folks that everybody in the industry thought that they were going to have a shot at him in like the fourth or fifth or sixth round because he, you know, he'd been hurt and he didn't mm. perform and the Marlins scooped him up quick and fast and and he was a big topic in trades um yeah i mean he he's the type of guy that i think you take you take a shot on lefty up to 96 from the left side three pitches but it's not just eater i mean they've they've added nick nastrini edward quero uh who else have they had dom fletcher who i'm sure we'll talk about prelander baroa kai bush um taking some shots at mike soroka Shane rohan, Shane rohan mike soroka yeah mike soroka they're gonna give a shot to uh, jared schuster in that schuster same deal. was the other one yeah i mean listen like they probably don't have a i don't think there's a three-win player anywhere in all of those mm. players but i think you might have a, a stable of guys with a shot to become two-win guys and that's the way that you fill out the back end of a competitive big league roster. Now they're mm. at least a year away from being able to turn the page and kind of change their approach, but they've gotten a lot of value out of the assets that they've moved. Where, where did they miss? And and we didn't talk about this beforehand, but where did that organization under, uh, under Ken Williams and under Rick Hahn, where did they miss? What was the big issue there? Was it just, the the Eloy Jimenez and the Yohan Mancadas of the world, they didn't give them tons of money, but they gave them some money, and they got hurt and only provided value when they were on the field, of course, and they didn't get their money's worth in general. And they're just I don't know. It seems like there were some names there, and it seemed like a lot of the, a lot of stuff was lining up for them to get pretty good, and then it just didn't happen. I mean, was it is this in large part due to? 
I mean, and I, I promise you I'm not bringing up the draft just because it's you, but did the White Sox miss too much in the draft over the last five, six, seven years for, for last year's team to be any good and for you know this coming season to be in good shape and for them to get to the point where they're changing the entire front office and bringing in Chris Getz to run things? I don't think so. I don't think this was a draft situation. I I look at it like they were good in 20. They were pretty good or on the come up in 21. And then it just fell apart. And it's fallen apart for a number of reasons. I mean, clubhouse culture has been an issue. Uh, you know, coaching player relationship has been an issue. But I think, you know, Tim Anderson falling apart was a, was a huge issue in his injuries. Like you look at it like maybe we put too much stock in a team that was built from the outside in. Because so much of the White Sox value in 20 and 21 came from, you know, first base and corner outfield. And um, they had some good starters, but, you know, Jose Abreu was one of their best players. And Eloy Jimenez is, is a DH. He's one of their best players. And like, mind you, Tim Anderson at his best was a top. I mean, he's a fantastic hitter, but mm-hmm. he's a, probably a top. 10 shortstop in the league top eight shortstop in the league and Luis robert has always been a dynamic center fielder but they were getting so much they were trying to expel so much value out of right field and dh and first base maybe it's a you know maybe it's a testament to teams that are built up the middle on you know mm-hmm. to the outside i don't know tough I, you... I and andrew vaughn too i can you answer this because i don't know what happened they ended yeah, up with it... five dhs on their team and i don't really know how we got here I mean, that's just bad roster construction. We've seen a lot of this and, and we kind of know how this works. I think the Philadelphia Phillies are the perfect example. If you wanna if you wanna overcome what otherwise would be bad roster construction by having like three DHs on your team and being below average defensively at far too many spots, you have to be really, really good on the mound and you have to be really, really good at the plate. You have to you just have to be re- like top five ish in those two areas and you can make up for the fact that your defense kind of sucks um but it's really difficult and expensive to do that look at all the money philly has done to get where they are with bryce harper and trey turner and spending you know 15 20 25 million dollars on short-term deals for guys like kyle schwarber and obviously all the money on their rotation so it's you know the white Sox don't spend that way uh i do look at the draft and say they've really struggled to get at least in the first round they've really struggled to get the kind of value that a team that wants to build their teams and and, and spend the way that they want to spend, you have to do better than, you know, Zach Birdie, Zach Collins, Jake Berger, Nick Madrigal, Andrew Vaughn. You have to do better than that in the first round, you know, and and Garrett Crochet, if you're going to make him a reliever immediately, like if that's what you think of him, then, then what, what are you doing? Like what's, well, you have to do better than that. It's not like they took Crochet at like 28, Joe. They took him at 11. Yeah. I mean, you got to do better than that. Now, maybe they've, they've hit the jackpot maybe with, with Colson Montgomery. We like Colson Montgomery. Uh, and, and maybe Jacob Gonzalez turns into be the guy that made the most sense at, what, 15? But that pick also kind of reminds me of some of the picks, you know, the Nick Madrigal pick at four. Nick Madrigal's really your guy at four in any draft. I just... I do think the draft is part of the a pretty significant part of it, just because of the way they want to build their team. I think you, with the thing you said about Crochet there was right on the money. Where did they get him? Twelve, ten, eleven. They got yeah, him the eleventh, eleven. 
Yeah, so here's the thing. Yeah. I, I, I can subscribe to the idea of a team taking a pitcher that they believe is going to contribute in their bullpen in a in the thrust of a competitive window at, like you said, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28. And 2020 wasn't a good... Was that that was 2021, wasn't it? Um, so 2020. It was the 2020 draft. Yeah, it was 2020. So like, yeah. I I get it. There wasn't a huge sample. Here's this tall, gangly lefty who's throwing 99, and um, but he had elbow issues, you know, at Tennessee. So mm-hmm. there was that. But the the biggest issue there was the White Sox came out and said we're gonna start Garrett Crochet. We're gonna treat him like a starter. He was in their bullpen within three weeks. Four yeah. weeks they thought he was they thought he was another Chris Sale and they forgot that they're just they're actually two different people and they're gonna get two different results because they're two different people. And then they didn't let him start in 21 and then he blew out. And I think his most valuable season was either 2020 or 2021 in in a very abbreviated um you know showcase. And then mm-hmm. to your point, like I, I had totally forgotten about uh I don't know how I'd forgotten about Nick Madrigal, but um yeah, that was that that single pick, I think, changed the draft. I genuinely believe that the Nick Madrigal pick single-handedly changed the draft for a huge segment of the industry. That I'm, nobody's going to make that quote-unquote mistake again. Mm-hmm. And you know, the adoption of TrackMan uh, on the college side of things has certainly helped uh, push those types of names down the board. Um, but yeah, and to your point, Jacob Gonzalez, like if you're going to take a college bat at 15 or 14 or wherever they took Jacob Gonzalez, um, you expect the guy to be one of the bitter, better producers right out of the game. He was one of the worst, one of the worst bats to make their introduction to pro ball in the entire draft this year. So not just you know, the first you, round. Not, no, he was awful. He was terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think yeah. if you're a White Sox, if you're a White Sox, uh, member of their front office, that has to have you a little bit nervous, but, um, I still believe in Jacob Gonzalez. Like I, I like the tools. I like the metrics. Um, it's a good frame. Like I still believe he could be every bit of what, what Brooks Lee, uh, but he's also game, representative good... of, of the problem of that, whatever we're talking about. Well, you hope that he's not representative of the problem, but at the same time, you but do even look if, at even some if... of the high school guys. You look even at some of the high school guys even drafted if he turns behind out Gonzalez. To be, even if he turns out to be what you want him to be, though, like if you th- if you think Jacob Gonzalez is in the big leagues in a couple years, what's the ceiling there? You, you need to get I mean, more out of that. He's probably that, not I think more that's than a three win player. Yeah, I, I, and listen, that's what the White Sox have done. They've they've always seemed to be a team that has reached for floor rather than ceiling, for better or for worse. You know, Colson Montgomery, um, ironically as their top prospect as a top 20 prospect in the game uh, was the biggest risk that they've, that they've taken. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, might, might and I said this, work. I said this a month ago on this podcast, I was, I wasn't out on Colson Montgomery as a high schooler, but I didn't see him as a top 15 pick or whenever they took him. They took and him he early. was a little older at draft time. Wasn't he very 19.2? Yeah. I think I, so I didn't, I didn't get that pick, but my point is, and and I think the point that you're making is they've gone for so many fast moving college performers that lack ceiling that I think it has kind of start to, to bite them in the ass a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think they thought they were okay because they had Moncada and he was young and they had him locked up. Uh, Tim Anderson was rolling. 
they had Aloy Jimenez locked up and he was young and he was hitting and I think they thought they were in really good shape and then they run into some injuries and Andrew Vaughn doesn't really develop at least not yet it's not certainly certainly not too late uh, and they're in a completely different spot at this point uh, they obviously didn't develop uh, a whole lot of pitching uh, and that may have been their biggest downfall but just in general like we look at the Texas Rangers they're not really developing a bunch of pitching right now but they have so much development in general they're able to just go get it even if they don't buy it they're able to go trade for it like they did with Jordan Montgomery so I actually expected this White Sox team this offseason Joe to to use Dylan Cease to use Luis Robert and even Andrew Vaughn to, to some extent to either push some contracts out the door if they could to at least try Yon Moncada's owed $25 million. Eloy Jimenez, I don't know what that number is. Kind of a lot. Um, but it's not like 200 mil. I thought they could have done that. Or, hey, uh, go out and, and get as young and, and get as much talent, young talent, as you possibly can. And here we are with a week left until pitchers and catchers report. And that hasn't been the case. And I don't necessarily think it's wrong or bad. I think it's really interesting, Joe. It's like maybe Chris Getz is seeing this a lot differently than at least I was. I don't know what you were thinking of the White Sox offseason. I expected Dylan Cease to be gone by now. I expected to hear Luis Robert Jr. rumors and buzz at least. And we haven't heard, you know, Jack all about that. Like they're not even considering moving Luis. And, and I understand that. It's just a little weird because I expected the opposite. I don't know. How long can they can they do this? How long can they hang on to a Dylan Cease? Or are you telling me, hey, if they hang on to Cease, they might be able to be interesting next year. Are you telling me that at this point? Looking at that roster, looking at that order, can they compete next year in 2025? I mean, I it kind of speaks to the additions that they've made. Like if you if you subscribe to the idea that Luis Robert is a six win player and Blake Snell is a five win starting pitcher, he gets back or not Blake Snell, excuse me, Dylan Cease gets back to being a uh, a four and a half five win pitcher. Then you have two anchors. Now you got to find a way to keep Dylan Cease around. Then, but you have those anchors. All those pieces that we talked about, I don't think they're going to be valued contributors until 2026. But if they can act as a bedrock, a floor, and kind of let those those anchor, those ceiling guys uh, carry the load, I think you could, especially in the central, like I think you could make the case that that team could run into 85 wins. I, I do, not this year, not this mm-hmm. year. But I think in 2020, uh, 2025, 2026, it's possible. But you look at it like this, like everybody that you just mentioned that they would want to try and move is coming off a bad year, is coming off a, their, their value is in the can. Like except Robert. Cease. Except Robert. He's the one Except guy. Robert. Except Robert. Mm-hmm. But you'd have to be blown away to move Robert. And if you're moving Robert, it would probably, like if you're moving Robert, you have to commit to moving Cease and you have to commit to moving Moncada and... Jimenez and all those guys, you're going to get about 60 cents on the dollar right now. So maybe it's just a timing thing. I bet you it's one of these. Like Chris Getz probably looks at last trade deadline, July 31st, 2023. And he goes, the returns were unbelievable for teams mm-hmm. that were that were sellers. What if we position ourselves to be the seller in 2024? We keep all these pieces. Instead of getting 60 cents on the dollar for three or four of these guys, maybe we'll get a dollar 15 on the dollar and kind of hope that some of them bounce back. We just take that risk. Yeah, even a Yon Moncada can get you something at the deadline if he's relatively healthy because you get to the deadline or even past, and instead of being owed 25 million, now he's owed like 10 or 11 late in July, early August. 
and splitting that and getting something for him becomes a realistic possibility. Now he hasn't played, hasn't performed. You, yeah, you're right. You're getting nothing. What What did you say? 60 cents on the dollar? You might be lucky to get 60 cents on the dollar. On Moncada. Specifically, yeah. And that's I a think rough we mentioned one. This last week. Yeah, I think we mentioned this last week. If you move Moncada now, I think you're eating $24 million. I think you're paying yeah. down $24 million. If you want even a Jose Caballero kind of a return, which mm-hmm. I think is precisely ironically what the white Sox lack <laughs> is is that yeah. is the middle of the diamond pesky you know they they don't have that mm-hmm. um and even to, to even get something like that with the ceiling of a two-win player uh you'd have to you'd have to just you know bite 24 million dollars away from that contract to take to have anyone take it i also wonder joe if uh if dylan ceases season last year is actually the culprit uh, for for those talks not getting serious, like like maybe Chicago thinks he and it wasn't like he was terrible last year, but he wasn't anywhere close to what he was still a you know three point seven F four arm last year. But when you look at the runs allowed metrics, like his strikeout rate was down three percent, his walk rate still still ten percent. It was about the same, but just in terms of keeping the ball in the ballpark, got a little worse. Uh, his ground ball rate got a little worse. His hard hit rate against got a little worse, and. Hence, all the runs allowed metrics going up like a half run. Now, his ERA more than doubled, but his FIP, XFIP, uh, XERA, things like that went up a half a run to to a run and a quarter. So something was obviously different there. And if you dig into it uh, you know, just a little bit, you'll notice that his curveball was just garbage. And maybe the White Sox are just thinking, we think he's going to get that back, and we think he's going to be closer to his 2022 version or at least be his 2021 version, uh, which was darn near as good as 2022. Trade him at the deadline, like he said. Like maybe yeah. they think because Cease is going to be back to normal, and you get that frenzy at the deadline, maybe that's just the way to go with Dylan Cease because it doesn't really sound like anybody got close to trading for Dylan Cease, does it? No, no. I, I mean, it sounds like the the Orioles, for example, were like an entire top fifty prospect away, which in the grand scheme of making a trade is a big piece yeah. away. Yeah. Um, uh, man, I look at that White Sox team from last year and to a lesser extent, 2022, and that was a systemic organizational failure. When the mm-hmm. entire team, when the entire team plays down, when when the entire team plays to 60% of their upside, that speaks to organizational failure. And a lot, a lot I, of things going wrong. A lot of things internally being broken. And I think you're going to see a lot of these players ending up in in new places, getting back to old form. Like I'm surprised that Tim Anderson is still on the market because he was quite literally the best hitter. He won the batting title two years in a row, I think. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have a job after one down year. Um, yeah. It's hard. It's hard for me to believe. What did he? He didn't homer until like June twentieth or something. It was something insane. Yeah. It's hard for me to believe Tim Anderson isn't going to catch on somewhere and be, you know, a solid, steady, two win, you know, fine, uh, big time regular shortstop. Yeah, that'll be interesting. What's he thirty years old? So he's not that old. So unless those injuries just completely decimated something about what he does, particularly at the plate. You got to think he's got a chance to uh, to do something. I, I, I get the the you know the reservation about how how often he's going to be available. Somebody's going to take a shot though. The White Sox, um, 
that uh, that offense. Only one team in Major League Baseball scored fewer runs than did the White Sox last year, despite the fact that the Chicago White Sox play in my living room. That is how small that ballpark is, um, and that is how large my living room is now. Um, just wow. awful, just terrible. They just had nothing going on offensively. I mean, the, the A's scored 585 runs. That's the only reason the White Sox weren't uh, by far the worst offense in the league. And when you look at that rotation, um, the rotation was 24th. The bullpen was 26. It was the 26th best pitching set. They had nothing, absolutely Their nothing. Their defense was bad. Going Their defense forward. was bad. I mean, and, I and, and I think they expected that. That's the That's the scary part. They expected that. That's how they built the team. I, yeah, I've got friends that that live in Chicago and are, are White Sox fans by birth, and Ooh. I've talked. I've, I've been friends with them for twelve years, and last year was the first time where they said it wasn't even about how bad the team was. That team was dreadfully um, not fun to watch. They brought no energy to the field. There was no accountability. There was no pride or passion in the colors or, I guess, shades that you're you're wearing on your jersey. Uh, they. That was a that I mean to be a White Sox fan, and then people were shooting each other in the stands with weapons. <laughs> there were there were women they were, they firing were, they guns were, into their own chests. They were arguing. White Sox, it was they were so arguing bad. over whether the problem was failed drafts or poor free agent uh, activity. Yeah. That's what they and were, then that's Karen what they were shot for. Sally with a gun that she snuck in in her stomach rolls. This is not something that would have been approved in a Hollywood script reading. Yeah, that is that is a scary thought, by the way. Scary thought. Um, scary. Wow, the White Sox. You know, something we'll do awesome. uh, with spring training starting starting next week, something you and I have talked about doing, and it sounds like it might be a fun conversation, just to go division by division. Um, so we'll do that. We'll, we'll start uh, either next week or the week after. We'll just go division by division. We'll talk about the six divisions during uh, spring training because this American League Central – I don't know. It's really interesting to me. Kansas City's trying to do a little something here. Uh, Detroit's start trying to make a little bit of a move here. And Cleveland and Minnesota have really not done a whole lot to make their team better for 2024. So while I got a little bit closer, the one team that's left out in the cold, the Chicago White Sox. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy, the American League Central. Uh, all right. Man, what a, uh, what a flip on its head. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, 100 losses. Yeah, I guess that'll get a GM fired and the president, for crying out loud. Uh, all right, free agency. Uh, still a thing. Here we are in February. We're just days from pitchers and catchers reporting. We have five, I'd say five significant free agents that I can think of off the top of my head that are still on the market. Joe Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, Matt Chapman, Cody Bellinger, and Jorge Soler is still out there. There have been dozens of signings, by the way. And we all talk about the Yamamoto's and the Otani's and sure, those are fun to talk about, but it seems every year this happens. We look back in June, July, August at the end of the year and we say, man, that was a, what a great deal that was. What a great signing that was. And let's do that again. Um, I was looking through this a little bit uh, to see what might be a little bit of an underrated signing. Um, and, and I landed I don't know. Well, I'm going to do one hitter and one pitcher. You could do it whichever way you want. Um, before I talk about this particular player, um, I'm going to throw out that that Jamer Candelario is one of mine in a very, very strange and odd manner. But I'll explain that in a little bit. What, what's the, the guy that stands out for you the most in terms of underrated free agent signings this offseason? I got 
two pitchers and I got a hitter. I'll start with one of the pitchers and, and we can we can go back and forth. Uh, for me, knowing what the Rays do and how they operate, getting Phil Maton on a one year, actually it's a, I think it's a one year with a club option for 25. Um, six million dollar deal. I think it's like seven million for 2025. But I mean, that's an organization that understands how to build a bullpen and understands how to, you know, provide a a, a unique look to a hitter and provide different pitch shapes and provide different arm slots. And you bring in a guy like Phil Maton who throws frisbees and went, he's still only 30 years old. And at his best, mm. I mean, that what is that a 70 slider when he's right? Yeah. I mean, when he's really right. Um, also shout out to Phil Maton 20th round pick. Uh, nicely done, sir. No, I, I just think like if you look at the way that the Rays have found success over the years, it's, it's acquiring um, unique looks like this. And I think Phil Maton is probably going to be, I'd be surprised if he didn't get back into his, you know, eighth inning shutdown uh, 2021, 2022 mm. version immediately. I'm surprised he lasted this long. I really am. Hector Neris lasted quite a long time. I'm surprised. And maybe these guys were looking for two and 20 and, and things of that nature. But man, I, I, when you look at, I mean, sure, you can hand the ball to David Robertson and kind of know what you're going to get, but would you rather hand it to, to Robertson or Maton? Like, I don't know that there's really that much of a difference. And it seemed like the frenzy over David Robertson was significantly greater than Maton, and I don't really understand that one. Uh, that's a good one because Tampa's either going to be in it, and we it's a great point, Joe. Um, they do some things with pitchers that I'm not saying no other team can do, but they have to be so creative in the way that they deploy guys that they, they tend to be very innovative in their usage of guys. And then the results, we look up at the end of the year, and we're like, where the hell did this come from? Um, yeah. and, and maybe Mayton has up turned out to be one of the, the elite relievers in the league from a value standpoint because of the way Tampa does. That's a really, really interesting uh, pick there. My arm is Jack Flaherty. Um, it gave him $14 million. It's a one-year deal. He's 28 years old. And back in, oh, I don't know, Joe, 2018, 2019, Flaherty was one of the top 15 starting pitchers in the national league over a two-year period uh made 28 starts in 2018 made 33 starts in 2019 was very very good was striking out 30 percent of the batters he was facing and then he started to get hurt the shoulders started to bug him uh the reason i like this deal is because late last year i think we saw a little bit of an adjustment by flaherty to because he's not throwing 95 96 anymore he's more 93 94 and he's throwing more cutters now and uh and throwing fewer change-ups i think there's a chance we're gonna see i'd say maybe 85 90 percent of the jack flaherty we saw back five years ago and detroit taking that chance i just think it's brilliant if detroit's not um uh, if they're not competing at the time which they absolutely could and that's the whole point in the first place in that particular division, like we were just talking about, the White Sox are out. Eh, the Tigers probably still better than the Royals. Can they catch up to Cleveland and Minnesota? Maybe. There, there's some talent there in Detroit. And I just think Jack Flaherty was perfect. He set the Detroit Tigers up to either help them win, and if they're not competing, be a really, really interesting trade target for a contender to go out and trade for, again, just like Baltimore did last year. 
you know, yeah, there's risk here. There's certainly risk here. Maybe he gets hurt again. Maybe the shoulder doesn't allow him, you know, to do some things. Maybe it doesn't allow him to start anymore. Maybe the durability is gone. But, you know, he, he did throw 144 innings last year. So I look at that as, all right, he's kind of working his way back from throwing 40, 78, 36 innings the previous three season, and he's ready to go 160 innings in 28 to 30 starts. I love that deal. You get a guy like that who has a couple of years where, I mean, he was a almost a five-win guy in 2019. If you can get even yeah. 80% of that back, it's going to be worth $14 million. I absolutely love that deal by Detroit. I mean, even if he's a number four, even if you can get half of that value, if he's a two-and-a-half-win pitcher, and, and he can just give you, like like you said, that's the thing with Detroit is they need someone that can go 150 innings. They need someone that mm-hmm. can post. They have not had that for the last two years. But if you can get a two-and-a-half-win pitcher, a solid number four that you know gives you 30 starts, 28, 29 starts, uh, that's going to be that's gonna be a bargain, 14 million mm-hmm. bucks. And it's probably a good opportunity for Jack Flaherty as well to reestablish his, his value in the game because he is right. one of the more athletic, talented, cerebral pitchers and for some reason the fastball velocity is has you know he's lost some of that over the last couple of years but i i mean he's still young i i I believe i believe jack flaherty has more in the tank yeah that's that's a really interesting one um i'll go again really quick here and and explain my uh jamer candelario this is all about the reds potentially moving a younger player and being competitive this year but candelario gives them the opportunity. I'm not thinking of him as a third base guy. I'm thinking of him as more of a DH first base guy, but they have a young guy. They have a couple of young guys that also fit best at first base. It looks like Noel V. Marte is going to be their, their long-term third baseman. And they're probably just going to leave him there. But if Cincinnati stays in it and stays at least in the wild card hunt, but stays in it in the, in the NL central and they want to move someone to go grab an arm you're not going to be able to move Candelario for that, but you might be able to move one of these other guys like uh, Spencer Steer, for example. Might be a guy another team's going to give up, you know, one or two years of a mid rotation starter for because you're going to control him for five years. I just think the Reds were thinking about this exact sort of situation when they signed Candelario. They signed him to a three year deal with a fourth year option. So I think they were buying the potential, the opportunity for down the road, maybe this season, maybe next season, to trade somebody like like Encarnacion Strand or Spencer Steer because they already have another answer here at first base slash DH and Candelaria. I, I loved it. As soon as they signed him, I was like, this is about maybe trading one of their first basemen. This is absolutely what that is. And they could do some damage this year. Some of those young players take another step forward, Joe. Yeah, they've, they've got a lot of – they're going to be another one of those teams that – can go two different directions. If the, if the Reds are winning, which I kind of think they're going to be a winner. I, I think they're going to be at least part of the conversation in the NL central. If they're a winner, great. They've got all of the ammunition in the cupboard that they would ever need. If guys go down with injuries that they, they can backfill them. But if they're a team that kind of sputters out of the gates and you know, some of these young prospects t- take a little bit of a sophomore slump, uh, they've got so many pieces that they can move to really uh, bolster up a farm system. That's still strong, but as has, has pushed a lot of guys up into the major leagues over the last year and a half. So I think Cincinnati is in a really good place. Uh, the issue that I have with, with Cincinnati right now is they don't have a headliner. They've got a, a ton of really nice pieces. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't surprise me if a guy or two guys, Ellie De La Cruz, Matt McClain, you know, I'd take your pick, Spencer Steer, 
it wouldn't surprise me if one of these guys turns into a four and a half win, five win player that, you know, gets all-star nods, but that's what they need. Like they moved the Luis Castillo and now they don't have the stopper, right? Uh, Maybe that's Hunter Green. Maybe this is Hunter Green's coming out part of the year, but um, they're, they're on the come up, man. Cincinnati looks good. And they got a couple of young guys, uh, Lodolo coming back, um, uh, Brandon Williamson, Connor Phillips uh, from from the trades with uh, Seattle. Um, obviously, Hunter Green you mentioned, but uh, they did sign Frankie Montas too. I liked that as well. That yeah, would be kind yeah. of a, an honorable mention for me. Um, who's your uh, Who's your second one? Second, I'm going to go pitcher again, and it worries me that this is actually going to take place. I think the Dodgers are going <laughs> to. I think the Dodgers are going to do it again, man. So they they bring in Ricky Venasco, who I loved Ricky Venasco as the prospect with the Rangers. He could never find the strike zone, never could find the strike zone. And last year, he just was up and down with injuries all year, but still over 32 innings last year with Texas and the Dodgers. I I, I mean, I guess I guess this is more of a re-sign than it is anything, but he spent the almost the entire mm-hmm. year with Texas. Um, mm-hmm. 32 innings, 45 strikeouts, and 14 walks. This is a guy that was up to 100 with an 85 mile an hour curveball, an 88 mile an hour slider. You know, he could throw an 84, 85 mile an hour changeup that he didn't really have any idea where it's going. Um, I don't know what they're gonna do with Ricky Venasco. Like, I, I kind of think this is the point of his career. I think he's 25 now. Like, this is probably the point in Ricky Venasco's career where he's a reliever. Like you just kind of give up on it and, you know, he's not Nathan Eovaldi and he's a reliever. And I think if they decide to just go that route, I mean, Ricky Venasco could be a high leverage guy this year if he's right back healthy. Um, so, yeah, kind of a re-signing, but ki- I, I kind of consider it a, a uh, new guy yeah, on the team because it was hey, only two months. Hey. Oh. Yeah, I, I get that. And he's basically he, a minor leaguer he, too. Was he was he a minor league free agent? It's been around I, a while. No, I don't think he was a minor league free agent. He's just okay. always been a minor leaguer, but they signed him to a major league forty man deal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, like I think that. that speaks volumes. They signed when did he start calling that hard, by the way? Because when he was drafted, what was that, 17 when he was drafted? And he was drafted late too. That was a big he guy, started right? Venasco blew up at the uh the the 2020 camps um what were those things called the alt site camps like his right. velo just exploded and then 21 he was living in the mid 90s and then i remember toward the end of 21 or maybe it was spring training 22 he touched 100 mm-hmm. and ever and it wasn't just the fastball the kid was always like this super athlete uh-huh. um but it wasn't just the fastball like all of the breaking balls ticked up 3 or 4 miles an hour and he was just throwing you know he three pitches that legitimately could be sixes, uh, but he just never knew where any of it was going. So I'm excited. Make, like that's another guy that I think could be like the next Pierce Johnson. Like he pops up out of nowhere as a 26 year old. And now he's an eighth inning guy for a world series contender. Just make it easy on him. Just throw him in the bullpen, yeah. throw your two favorite pitches and run with it. Yeah. I like that. Uh, my, my last one is Lance Lynn. Joe, doesn't it mm. seem like Lance Lynn is about 49 years old? It seems like Lance Lynn has been around for 20 years, uh, but he's just 36. Uh, obviously, big guy. Didn't have a good year last year, but he was a two-win guy in 2022. He was a four-win pitcher in 2021. 
Uh, obviously, far cry from the Cy Young-esque level uh, that year he had back uh, back in Texas. And he had a bunch of three-win years in St. Louis. But he's back in St. Louis. And I really like his chances to go out there and just be himself after what he learned about himself last year to start the season and what he learned in Los Angeles with the Dodgers. Uh, I think he's got a chance to be another two, kind of surprise some people, two, two and a half wins. He threw 180 plus innings last year as a 35-year-old dude. He turned 36 in May, and they only gave him one year and $11 million. There's a club option there, but $11 million. I think this is going to pay dividends for the St. Louis Cardinals. You and I agreed. They When the Cardinals went out of their way to be the first team to take guys off the market, and it mm. was the, the public narrative – on MLB Network and Twitter and all these cesspools was, okay, yeah, the Cardinals are addressing their pitching needs, but they're literally going out and getting the highest ERA and the highest home run rate on the free agent market. Lance Lynn strikes me as the type of guy that just won't allow his career to go that direction. He won't allow himself to, and I was wrong about Mad Bum. I mean, Mad Bum fell apart. Very fast. I thought it was the same type of thing with Mad Bum. Uh, but I just have a hard time seeing Lance Lynn fall off a cliff like this. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know it's kind of a proxy comment, but uh, Kyle Gibson is the exact same way. Like, he's going to be valuable. And you you, su- you supplement that with, with Sonny Gray. And I love what the Cardinals did this offseason. And I really think it's gone under the radar. Yeah, to to see Lance Lynn, if if you're into pitch values at all, like stat cast pitch values, pitch info, pitch values, you can get those at fan graphs. Uh, It'll tell you that the thing that changed most the last couple of years with Lance Lynn was nothing, was just a little bit here and there. Yeah, he kind of switched from from the four-seamer to the sinker a little bit. Uh, But in terms of pitch value, it's just a little tiny bit here and there it's the the curveball just said a little less value in 2024 or 2023 versus 21 and 22 the change up a little less value the cutter a little less value it's like it, it it seems like in many many ways with at least three maybe even all of his pitches he was just a little off he's still yeah. throwing the, his average fastball 92.6 miles an hour it just seems like there's just a little bit of an adjustment here. and i think of lance lynn as the quintessential pitcher He's never been a guy to blow, you know, guys away with 99. I mean, he did used to throw a little harder, 93, 94, 95. Yeah, I, I like this. I like I like the chances that this is at least a value at $11 million. And to be honest with you, I think the riskiest move, uh, the one I like the least anyway, is the Sonny Gray deal. I know he only yeah. got, what, 3 and 75. That's the one I like the least. I like the Gibson one. I like the Lance Lynn get. Uh, they still have Miles Nicholas there. I don't know how that's going to turn out, but uh, – I really like the Lance Lynn. I thought he was going back to the Dodgers, but the Dodgers obviously had uh, other plans, Joe. <laughs> yeah, no, they they decided to spend five billion dollars on other on other players. Um, I think you and I would both agree that if you viewed those three pitchers as a package deal, as a trio, mm-hmm. it's a it's an a B plus. You know, like that's sure. a really good way about going. Sunny Gray deal, a B. You know, and then maybe they're all three of them are just B's, mm-hmm. but it might end up being a B plus. That's the type of rotation that I think takes you to, you know, surprisingly takes you to an NLCS. I find it fascinating, Joe, that we're see- we're seeing this a little bit more. We're seeing 
because uh, this used to happen, you know, and I know we're, we're from a little bit different eras, but you used to see this more in the 80s and 90s than in the 2000s. Yeah. Uh, guys that are 33, 34, 35 years old having career years. Well, that was Sonny Gray at 34 years old. That's Sonny Gray. Uh, I don't know what that means for, for this coming season or the seasons after that, but he had a great year. I can't remember exactly where he finished in the, the American League Cy Young voting, but he was, he was legit in the running all year. Uh, he was that good. Uh, if, he's, if he's even 75, 80, 85% of that, he's going to be worth the 3 and 75 over the next three years. So uh, really interesting what the Cardinals uh, are doing. Here's the thing. We're gonna, again, we're going to go through all this just really quickly. Can the Cardinals win that division? Yeah. Yes. Without yeah. I, 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 it's I don't even question it. Yes. Yeah. They they went out and didn't even spend a ton of money. They did almost nothing with their position players, and they've turned their team into. Well, I mean, let's look at what they did last year. They were the worst team in the National League Central, <laughs> seventy-one uh, and ninety-one, and now we're looking at them like, yeah. I get it. You had Sonny Gray, you had a little depth, you get a Lance Lynn and a Kyle Gibson. You hope guys like, you know, maybe Rom and Thompson take a step forward. You still like your bullpen, even if you don't love it. Maybe Steven Matz goes to the bullpen permanently. Uh, yeah, you, there was really nothing wrong with the offense to begin with. So here we are. And Milwaukee took a step back. So it's basically Cubs, Cardinals, Reds. That's probably where it ends at, at that point. I don't think Pittsburgh is going to contend uh, in 2024. Yeah, yeah, pretty remarkable that that you can go out in a division in Major League Baseball in a, in a major professional sport and add one really good pitcher and two middling guys that you're not really sure how they're going to go, but they're trending in the wrong direction and go from 71 wins to a team that can win the division. <laughs> I just find it yeah. fascinating. Freaking you fascinating. Know, you know, what teams kind of like what you mentioned with teams of the 90s, too. Teams in the 90s paid for workhorses. They paid for guys that were going to post up 200 innings. And they paid for guys that were going to set a tone in the clubhouse. Like, that was a big thing. You know, there were pitchers that pitched till they were 37, 38, 39 that were not good. But they continued to right. get contracts because they set a culture. They set a tone. They set accountability, expectations, responsibility for putting in the work. And I think every single one of those three guys that they, that they brought in in St. Louis is going to contribute to that narrative. Uh, but they also needed pitching, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, before we move on from the Cardinals really quick, Nolan Arenado. I go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nolan Arenado. Uh, did not have a great year last year. It wasn't terrible. Um, things were a little bit different. Uh, wasn't didn't, didn't swing and miss a bunch more or uh, things were just, it was just a weird year for him. 266, 315, 459, 26 home runs in 144 games. He was a two and a half win player. I keep getting asked, mostly from a fantasy standpoint, but I keep getting asked, is Nolan Arenado done? I go, well, he might be done putting up six and seven win seasons. You know, he did that three times in Colorado, four times in Colorado, and, you know, his second year in St. Louis. But I, I, I look at Arenado and say, unless you're telling me at 32, he'll be 33 in April, that he's hurt and there's some sort of recurring thing going on there with injury. Like, this is a, a guy that's absolutely, positively, without question, getting back to the three and a half, four win range. Am I nuts for thinking that? No. No, I mean, St. Louis is kind of like Chicago last year. Like the whole thing fell apart. 
And even guys with the wherewithal, like Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, and some of the starting pit, Yachty, like some of the guys that were on that roster, everybody regressed because it was just a cultural thing. I, I mean, and maybe this is a, a managerial issue with both of these teams, but when the whole team is playing to 70% of, of what you expected them to, it, it goes beyond the players. Yeah, it was weird. I'd be a little bit more worried about Paul Goldschmidt just because he's older. No yeah, other reason. Just because he's older. Yeah. yeah, and he didn't have and he didn't have a great year last year either, but that'd be the only thing there. Uh, 33 from Arenado doesn't scare me at all. Under the radar freeze. You got any more? Because I got man, one more. You got one more. I got all a right. bat. I got a bat. Um, how about Joey Wendell for two million bucks to the Mets? How about going and spending two million dollars at the Dollar Tree to replace Jeff McNeil <laughs> or to to ensure Jeff McNeil? How about going and getting Kmart Luis Arias and Joey Wendell? I love it. You know what you're going to get with Joey Wendell. I right? think you. I, I don't. Well, I mean, if you do, you you probably don't like it. No. I mean, this is a guy. This is a guy who was worth negative wins above replacement last year. What was he in 2021 and 2022? He's not old. He was a one-win player in 2022. Um, He was was a a three-win player in 2021 in Tampa. Um, They're they're looking for a little bit of a bounce back. Hey, all I'm saying is you can do worse at the utility Mm -hmm. position than Joey Wendell, and I don't buy for a second, considering like quite literally the type of player that he is. He's mm-hmm. not a swing and miss guy. He's not an exit velo guy. He's not a physical tools guy. Like that's a if you ever expected a bounce back from any type of archetype, like it's Joey Wendell. And sure. so I don't even think he he shouldn't play 120 games, but if you throw him out there 65, 70 times at second and third base, you could do worse. I think you just nailed it on the head, Joe. I think the problem with Wendell was in Miami he was asked to play a little too much. Uh, he played 112 games in 2023 because he pretty much had to. They had injuries and performance issues, and he just kept going. Maybe the Mets, because of who else they have in their organization and on their roster, they're able to protect him a little bit and use him truly as a part-time guy, and he only plays 70 games. Completely different. I mean, he's always hit – he's a left-handed batter. He's always hit righty. Well, except for last year. Oddly, he had reverse splits, but for his career – pretty pretty significantly better against right-handed pitching which is totally normal maybe that's just what he is and then all of a sudden yeah. he's he's putting up a 100 wrc plus against right-handed pitching and you'll take that all day off the bench so I like hey, speaking of speaking of the joey wendell types has tony kemp signed anywhere yet uh that's a good question not not off the top of my head i'll look it I up i don't think he has either he that's another scrappy utility player that really you can yeah. do i mean maybe it's just that he blisters Seattle. I mean, that guy just <laughs> blisters Seattle and he doesn't really yeah. do anything against anyone else, but yeah, yeah. he has not signed uh, Tony Kemp second base outfield uh, can certainly run uh, just turned 32 on Halloween. Uh, had a terrible 2023, but yeah. he was a one and a half win player in 22. He was a three win player in 2021. Uh, he'll make a bunch of contact and he'll draw walks uh, and he can run. He stole 26 bags combined in the last two years. Um, you give him two and a half million bucks to be your 26th man, right? Absolutely. Did you say Wendell got two million? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'd I'd give Kemp about the same. Absolutely. 100. Yeah. percent Yep. Left hand batter, right hand thrower. Play a little second. Play a little outfield. Pinch run. Yeah. Somebody's gonna pick him up. Somebody's gonna give him a couple million bucks. Maybe he's holding out for. Uh, I imagine because I'm, I'm Tony Kemp, Joe. I'm like I'm a year and a half younger. 
than that Joey Wendell dude, and he just got two million. I'm getting at least two point one. That's what I'd be thinking right now if I was Tony Kemp. Um, yeah, been that's a weird, weird market to set, but I sure. Am, <laughs> but that's what I'd be doing if I was Tony Kemp. Well, Joey Wendell just got two point one from the Met or two from the Mets. I'm getting two point one, or I'm done. That that would be my <laughs> my uh, my stance until somebody calls my bluff. Then I'm like, all right, I'll take one point eight. Uh, good stuff there. Um, let's talk draft before we go. Uh, the one of the more interesting things to me about covering the draft, paying attention to that, and really baseball in general, sports in general, is the differing opinions you know you get. You know, one one big thing I'm into. I'm into all the well, not all the drafts. I love the NFL draft uh, because college football is my second favorite sport. So. This is about college football players talking about NFL draft. And you hear this guy's opinion on this player. You know, you get Matt Miller, Jordan Reed over here, and you get Doug Farrar over here, and you get, you know, uh, Todd McShay and Mel Kuyper. And, you know, you get all just a bunch of, you get Daniel Jeremiah and Bucky Brooks. Hey, I scouted this player. And here's what you just get a bunch of different, you know, opinions. Um, the same thing is true for the MLB draft. And I just thought, hey, what areas, because I used to think about this too, I, working with Keith Law, and I'd be like, why does Keith think X about this player? And everyone else seems to think Y. And then at the end of the day, I'm like, well, I guess we'll find out in five years. And then most of the time, Joe, I got to be honest with you, nobody was right. <laughs> no, <laughs> That's the, nobody that, was right. That is the truth. <laughs> Keith wasn't really right. And, and you know, everybody else wasn't really wrong. It was just kind of somewhere in the middle. But I'm curious because your nose is to the grindstone here, um, particularly with the 24 class, but with all the classes. But thinking about the draft in front of us, do you have a, a belief, an opinion, uh, a stance, a set of analyses where you come to one conclusion, at least at this point, the, the closest thing you can come to, uh, resembling a conclusion where it's just quite different from the rest of the industry, the consensus of the rest of the industry. I'm curious what those are. are. There are a couple that you can tell us about a player or the strength of the draft or something where here's where you are and everyone else seems to be somewhere else. Yeah, I think everyone, I think every publication, evaluator, writer, online scout, whatever you want to call them, uh, is going to have guys that, you know, they hitch their wagon to. I, I think with this, with this 24 class, I, I think I'm doing a lot more projecting out than I am living off of 2023's numbers mm -hmm. because that's what this is about, right? It's like, what is this going to look like in five years? And I think, you know, the guy that stands out on our board or my board, or it, it's the FSS plus board. The guy that stands out the most is probably Carson Benj, the uh, outfielder, right-handed pitcher at Oklahoma State. I've got him at 12. I've got him. I got him getting about four and a half million bucks. And if you go to other publications, you'll find him, you know, like 30 to 60. Okay. I, I just believe, I mean, listen, this kid is six foot, two and a half, 180 pounds. Like in a draft that's full of guys that are physically maxed, this is a left-handed hitter with lightning quick hands, bordering on elite chase rates, tons of projection, a 70 grade arm in the field and a 55 runner. I just, you know, the, his thing last year was Carson Benj posted really, really high ground ball rates. And that's going to be an issue at the next level. 
But if you take that away and you look at just the physical tools, it's hard for me to see a whole lot of players in the first round that I would rather have in 2027 than Carson Bench. So I'll die on that hill at least until week two when I'll change my opinion. <laughs> so you have him at 12. So here's, I think we talked about this last year too. I don't, I'll, I'll say fall for uh, that. That's not the best way to put this, but I don't really care all that much about the two way thing. I just don't. Me either. Um, is, tell me, is Benj a center fielder? Is this a guy who probably ends up in center field? No. Okay. So this is a corner guy. Okay. Now we have a problem, right? Like traditionally we have a problem. We don't necessarily, if he's going to go out there and hit 350, I don't really care how many, you know, and put up a 430 OBP. I don't really care how many home runs he hits, but yep. now we have a, a problem from a traditional scouting standpoint, at least when you're trying to put together a team guys in the corners, you want them to hit for power, obviously. And he's hitting a lot of ground balls. And I think he had 24 extra base hits last year at Oklahoma state. So you're thinking though, that player, the guy that hit what 340 last year with a 470 OBP and just seven home runs in 60 games at Oklahoma State, you're just thinking we're going to see a different guy. You're not saying totally. that guy's the 12th best player. You're thinking no. this year's version is just different. No, I mean it is it is near top of the charts. Like it's not Tommy White, it's not Nick Kurtz, but the exit velo data shows that this is every bit a plus raw power guy. He's got fast hands. He's got a comfortable 15 pounds ahead of him. He can run. He can throw. You know, everybody, all the publications, and, and this guy's a future stars guy, so I mean this respectfully. Everybody points to Braden Montgomery mm -hmm. as, wow, it's an 80 arm in right field and raw power, you know, and crazy. Sure. Carson Benj made more contact last year, had less chase rate last year, and had equal uh, exit velocity data last year unfortunately he just hit the ground hit the ball on the ground a whole bunch sure i think they're incredibly similar players i just think mm -hmm. Braden montgomery has been has been a physically developed version of carson bench going back to like his junior year of high school mm -hmm. so i think i think he's gonna blossom and you're probably gonna see a similar slash like a 340 uh you know like a 340 430 580 slash but i think you're going to see 16 to 20 home runs mm -hmm. and that puts him neck and i mean that's a horse race with Braden montgomery to see who the better player is yeah absolutely and they're both in this class you didn't take a yeah. guy from a completely different class you have montgomery at 16 right now uh transferred to uh texas a&m obviously full of tools but it sounds like carson bench full of tools as well now he's up to the mid 90s and beyond when he does pitch so the arm strength is there even if he's not necessarily a pitcher at the next level. Um, Left-handed bat, I like that, uh, mm -hmm. even though he's a right-handed thrower. He said he was like 6'2", 185, 190, something like that. Not even 6'2", 180. So is this a guy, what kind of raw speed are we talking about here too? Uh, 55, I mean, he stole, okay. let me go back and look. He okay. can run, he can run, he can, okay. he can play an above average right field. And if you throw the arm into the glove mm -hmm. grade consideration, it's, you know, he's gonna be, a valuable right fielder. Yeah. And yeah. here's like the, the thing with Benjamin is he wasn't recruited as a junior in high school. He wasn't really recruited. He's recruited more as a pitcher mm -hmm. uh, in high school as a senior. And he was up to like 92 and there were a couple teams on him. Uh, then he blows out. So he misses 2022. 
comes back in 2023. Nobody knows who this guy is as a bat. And he hits at Oklahoma State. He hits 380 with a low strikeout percentage, low chase percentage, big exit velos, a, a long uh, projectable frame, good body guy. Like this is for me, this is what they look like. That's a fun player. That's a fun player. So if you're out there and you're looking for players to watch, you're looking for developments. We talked a couple of weeks ago about some things Joe wanted to see from certain players that were, you know, top 50, top 100 guys. This is kind of the same idea with uh, with Benj. Let's see if he can turn some of those ground balls into line drives and maybe even create some backspin and hit the ball out of the yard a little bit. If you start seeing that, that number 12 ranking is going to look really, really good. This is uh, this is fun. Uh, I see some some differences here uh, when I'm looking at your board here, Joe. Uh, I'm curious who your next guy is um, or what your next, uh, you know, kind of industry difference is. Um, let's pick a fight with the rest of the industry for crying out loud. Okay, um, yeah, that'll go well. Know, like, yeah, like why not? Like rest, But here's the great thing about it. We're just picking a fight with the industry. We're not t- picking a fight with any individual. They're not going to care. They'll be like, he's not talking to me, but we're absolutely talking to you. Um, who, what, what else you got here? What else fits here? Because uh, Carson Bench, I literally wrote his name down, and he's on my calendar now. Yeah, the other one is, I guess it's another kind of model darling, uh, Virginia catcher Ethan Anderson. Mm. I'm huge on Ethan Anderson. So mm. for one, he will not be 21 years old at the draft. He will be 20 and nine months. Now, keep in mind what I just said, catcher at Virginia – Ethan Anderson. He mm-hmm. hasn't caught in the first two years because they had Kyle Teal, mm-hmm. who was a monster back there, both athletically and with the uh, with the bat. So why would you ever take him out? Let me give you a snapshot of Ethan Anderson's amateur career. As a 17-year-old who had not yet enrolled in college in the uh, Florida Colts base, Flor- f- excuse me, the Futures Collegiate Baseball League, Wood Bat League, as a 17-year-old, he hits 427, 522, 667 in 29 games with five homers against college pitching. Huh. 2022, as an 18-year-old in the ACC, 50 games, 302, 403, 497, five homers. Uh, in both of these seasons, he almost had as many walks as strikeouts. Last year, as a DH first baseman, 65 games, 375, 469, 649, 15 homers, and 10 more walks than he had strikeouts. This is the guy that is now going to be catching full-time or at least, you know, get 40 games Mm -hmm. for Virginia this year. The scouts that I've talked to really believe it could be a five-glove. And if it's even a platoon defensive catcher, if it's even a platoon, Left-handed stick, 6'2", 215. Like, if this is a guy that hits, he, he could take a step back. If he hits 340, 440, in the ACC this the year. with first-round guy, though. It's a first-round guy. Yeah. And he's never stopped hitting at every stage. And he won't be 21. If he can prove he can catch, and I think that's the important part, is he's only caught nine games in three seasons, two seasons. Mm-hmm. If he proves he can catch. Ethan Anderson is going to be a first round pick. I didn't wow. even, yeah, I mean, I didn't even tell you what he did at Harwich on the Cape with a wooden bat. That was that was a bit more of a struggle. I mean, mm-hmm. 91 plate appearances uh, with a wood bat, terribly foggy and cold this summer, but he had another, he had two home runs there, six walks. I mean, he did only 
post a 195 average. So actually not anything to write home about, but it's like 20 um, games though. Yeah. It's like 20 games. Mm. Yeah. So it doesn't wipe out. I'm all over. You did. So I'm we're talking over. about yeah. a, uh, we're talking, I don't know. Does that remind you of anybody, by the way? It's, he's a legit switch hitter, right? Yeah. I don't know who it would remind me of. Do you have anybody in mind? Like right away that comes to, that comes to mind. Well, I got a question. I haven't seen him. So tell me what kind of athlete he is. It's not great. I mean, I, I, he's probably a 40 athlete. He's he's a 40 runner. Like, he's not going to provide much value on the basis. He's in, he's a high instincts guy. Like, he's grabbed mm -hmm. a couple bags in his career, and he's got an average arm. But he's not a good enough athlete to have even played the outfield at Virginia. Uh, sure. And, you know, Virginia isn't exactly chock full of uh, chock full of athletes. So <laughs> they've got some good guys, but they had, a, they had a ton of just true freshmen in the outfield last year. Right. So this is a mostly from an athletic standpoint. This is a, this is a bat, a guy that's if he doesn't catch, he's mostly a first. Has he played a bunch of first base? Because I don't like to, you know, I'm a, I'm a Ron Washington, you know, believer. I don't want to just assume a guy can play first base like automatically. He got, but he's yeah. he's got some at bat, so he's DHing or playing first base, right? I mean, he played 65 games at, at first base last year, and he played exclusively at first base uh, on the Cape this past summer. So uh, nobody got a chance to see him behind the plate on the Cape, which I think was a bit of a disservice by Harwich. Um, but that that's not going to be the case at Virginia. I don't know. But it, you 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 telling me about the player, and I think of a bunch of guys. I, I can't really think of one. Um you know, that, that fits, but think about, um, think about guys like Todd Hunley's best years. Now, they're, they're a little bit different physically, but Todd Hunley's best years. That's what I think about. I think about, and Todd Hunley had a, actually had a pretty darn good career, but you think of Todd Hunley's best years. He was a 4.7 win catcher for the Mets, 260, 360, with the 40 bombs, uh, back when 96, when, you know, power went crazy and then he basically did the same thing the next year but that seems to be i mean hit 260 get on base 35 36 percent of the time 36 percent of the time hit 25 30 home runs does that sound completely out to, to be honest that sounds a little bit like cal raleigh right now i mean if i'm being like i'll dial it back a little bit i i don't know if he's got the raw power that some of those guys you mentioned, uh, yeah, I think he's more of a hitter than he is a power hitter. Like, I think he's probably going to be a guy that hits 15 to 18 home runs at his peak at the mm -hmm. big league. It's not enormous bat speed, but that first part that you mentioned, like if you can find a guy that can actually catch and post you a 265, 340, 430 line, come on. It's absolutely insane. I mean, that's it's, huge. I, this is why yeah, guys like Kyle Teal were go on under, under drafted. Mm -hmm. because now it's like, well, it, it, teams start to overthink it a little bit. It's like, well, yeah, he can catch, but do we want to kind of waste him at catcher and wear him down? So like teams start having talks about where else can the guy play? Jeez, guys, like the guy can catch, use him at catcher, and then make the decision later. You only have to think about it for the first six years anyway. I don't know what you're doing. And maybe Ethan Anderson's another one of those guys. It's like, yeah, yeah maybe you can catch a little now, but when he's 30 or, or 29, maybe it doesn't look great. Who cares? <laughs> you know cares? what a scout told me about Kyle Teal last year? He mm. said uh you can include Dylan Cruz, you can include Wyatt Langford, I don't care, you include the whole class. Kyle Teal probably has the easiest path to becoming a four-win player as any of them. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, he's a catcher that can run mm -hmm. with power. They can throw guys out like five tools behind the plate. And that's what mm -hmm. Seattle's dreaming on with Harry Ford. And, Sure. Yep. It's, in, it's, it's rare. Yep.
Yep, that's a fun player, Ethan Anderson. So we got Carson Benj, Ethan Anderson. Um, anything else stand out? I, you know, that's that's pretty much the gist of it. I'm a little bit more bullish on on a couple of the high school pitchers. I like Levi Sterling. I've got him at 26. I think he's a SoCal kid that's young, long, up to 97 with four pitches and dynamic strike throwing ability. I'm I'm 15 or so spots ahead of the industry on on him, but um, Anderson and Benj are the ones that stand out and. I'll give kudos to Pipeline for being. Uh, I think they're the high man on Slade Caldwell right now at mm-hmm. at twenty. So I love Slade. Yeah, I've noticed that uh, a couple that you're higher on than than most, um, like by ten or twenty spots, and that may not mean a whole lot. But I, the East Carolina kid, um, I haven't seen him higher than maybe like uh, maybe maybe thirty thirty five. I think Pipeline has him in the mid-30s. You have him at 18. Uh, I can certainly see why you have him at 18, just reading your write-up. A 6'4", 230, touching 96, two breakers. Um, like, it has a change-up. Like, like, I get it. Uh, and East Carolina certainly has a track record. Um, uh, that's one, um, just from a player standpoint. Have you noticed a whole lot about... Um, like from a demographic standpoint at this point, and it's early, but we see rankings and there's lots of, you know, talk, you know, with the season, the D1 season starting next week. Have you noticed anything, any differences in terms of like, um, you know, who the number one pick's going to be or could be or upside on Weatherholt or, um, you know, the strength of the prep class? Have you seen any significant differences there or do you kind of sort of see eye to eye with the rest of the industry on things like that? I, I honestly think, and in seven, six or seven years of doing this and publishing it, I think this is the first time that the industry as a whole is pretty much a uniform on who the top three guys are. If, if the draft were today, who would go one, two, three, or in any order? I think Connor Griffin is a guy that some people anticipate will be in that top three, top four conversation, mm-hmm. even though he's you know, in, in like the six to 12 range for a lot of people, as we wait to see how things flesh out. I think the biggest thing with this draft right now that everybody has to wait for is it's the first time I've seen this too. The amount of college arms at the top of this class with such enormous red flags and strike throwing ability. I've never seen that with, with Hagen Smith and Marcus Morgan and Brody Brecht. And, you know, I've, Jack Caglione, if you want to throw him in there, like Mm -hmm. strike throwing ability at the top of this class is an enormous question mark. And everyone's just kind of waiting to see who survives uh, the test of, you know, did you take a step forward in that regard this, this spring? Let let me ask you one thing on that, because I see some of the guys on your list, obviously uh, Brody Brecht, Chase Burns, um, Hagan Smith, uh, the Arkansas lefty, who's obviously a lot of fun. Uh, Jonathan Santucci from Duke. Um, there are enough guys in your top 20, top 25 from a college arm perspective that suggests if the Brecht Burns Smith group don't figure it out and do what scouts are hoping they do from a, you know, control standpoint, from a command standpoint, um, could we see somebody like a Santucci or, um, or even Josh Hartle or somebody like that 
end up being the first college arm off the board, or are those top three guys pretty firmly the top three college arms, even if they don't sneak their way into the top eight or so? No, I think if Chase Burns repeats what he did last year or something similar, his strikeout rate is was low enough to where he could be the first college arm off the board. I think Brody Brecht could fall into the 20 to 40 range pretty pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I think Hagen Smith could fall into the 20 to 40 range pretty quickly. But the guys that I think could jump, I listen, I've known Josh Hartle going back to 2019. I've interviewed him three times. He's a terrific kid. I don't think there's much chance that he goes as the number one college arm just because of his velocity limitations. Just not enough upside there. There's just not enough stuff. Like at best, he's Jordan Wicks, I, I think. But you look at a guy like like Matt Ager at UC Santa Barbara. There's an enormous up arrow next to his name right now. I've got him at 31. Wouldn't surprise me if he went 15. Michael Massey at Wake Forest. It's a guy that pitched, you know, behind some of the best college arms in the sport over the last couple of years. He's going to be like the Saturday guy this year. Um, he's a guy that could go in the top 10 to 15. So I, I think the guys that you look out for are Massey and Ager. And I think you look at Brecht and you look at Hagen Smith as guys that could tumble. And Yasavage, I think college are like, there's just too many teams that try to get pitching value out of the draft. That makes me think that Trey Yasavage is going to go in the top, like 30 to 35 picks and Santucci's the same way. Like, yeah, this is definitely like the White Sox, you know, <laughs> like the the Cardinals. Like there are there the Tigers. There are enough teams that just sure. they want that floor. They want to build out a farm that way. Is there a clear number one prep arm for you at this point, at this stage in things, uh, in this particular class? Not really, man. They've all got warts. Mm-hmm. Um Cam Caminiti is 19 for me, ton of polish three breaking balls, but he can't spin the ball at all. Like his breaking ball is like 2,100 RPMs. It's it's like Patrick Corbin. And you see Patrick Corbin as a guy who had a high flash that got him a big, uh, big contract. But when the stuff peters off, you're on a razor's edge. Um, Levi Sterling is probably my favorite high school arm, even though it's a little bit under a little bit less refined. Then you got guys like Bryce Rayner and you got uh, Joey Oki and Ryan Sloan and Duncan Marston, who, could all be the the first pitcher off the board. It's they're all just further down the board for for specific reasons. Whether it be mm-hmm. a third pitch, you know, um, they don't have a long track record. Like Marston, I, we talked about him last week. This is his first time pitching since his freshman year in high school. Bryce Rayner's been a shortstop up until this point, right. um, and Oki and Sloan just they don't have the same type of physical frame and and third pitch that the other guys do. So. I'm going to ask you this in five months again, but, and probably I'm going to ask you all of this stuff again in five months, but can't wait to be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite player in this draft? Oh yeah. It's not even close. And this is not a marketing ploy. I, I love Slade Caldwell. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I think he I thought, is I, everything. I <laughs> he's everything that the game is all about, man. Like he hustles, He's respectful. Everything is balls to the wall. Um, he gets, you know, he's five foot six, five foot seven. Like he gets more out of his frame than some of the guys that are a little bit more physically blessed. Um, yeah, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't root for Slade any harder. He's a first round guy, right? I think so. I mean, mm-hmm. 
I think the Drew Gilbert and Corbin Carroll comps are a little disingenuous because he is smaller, but um, it's it's hard to see Slade becoming an MVP type of a player, but it's also hard for me to find a route where Slade doesn't become a big league regular. He's yeah. just, you know, he, he's, five, six, he's, he's the intangibles. Five, six, yeah, 180, five, six, all the makeup, all the good stuff. Uh, left-handed bat, right? So quick out of the box. Yeah. Um, More bat speed than Nick Madrigal. <laughs> Take him three. And a significantly better swing. I've seen it myself. So let's get out of here if anybody wants to go there. Um, is he going to get drafted high enough? And again, I know we're five months out. Does he end up getting drafted high enough to keep him away from Ole Miss? Is anywhere yes. in the first round going to be high enough? All right. All right. I think Slade and his family I don't know who he's represented by, so I apologize whoever hears this. I think if if Slade has thrown $2 million or more, he probably deserves three and a half. But if a guy that's five foot six gets thrown $2 million in the draft, you don't go to Ole Miss, start your pro career, get your bag. Yeah. And um, yeah, and man, get to the big in three years like, and start making your agents. He could be life. there in two. Like, it's just, there's not. There's, it's also simple with Slade. It's short to the ball. He's going to hit. So, yeah. And, and he's and we're talking about a big-time runner. We're talking about a seven or an eight, right? I don't think it's an eight, but it's okay. probably a strong six with some seven times in there. Okay. And, yeah, out of the box, left-handed swing, all that good stuff. Fun. Yeah, I figured that's where you were going to go, but I thought maybe you talked about Slade Caldwell enough to where you'd go in a, a completely I'll stop direction. Now. So I'll stop. no, 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 stop no. Stop stroking don't, his don't, ego. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's not listening to this. Uh, he's off playing ball. Uh, I the, hope not. The agent might listen to this, and and if that's the case, um, you know, call Joe. Don't call me. Uh, don't call me. Please don't, don't call anything, me. I don't have anything to do with any of this. Uh, I, you know, we're going to be asking this question all year, but I think what's fascinating about this class is the guy that a lot of people, not everyone necessarily, but the guy that a lot of people, including you in terms of your your rankings right now, uh, have as the best player in this class is a five foot ten, 190 pound guy that's going to play shortstop in college for the first time, if, if I'm not mistaken. And he's probably more of a second base maybe yeah. if you want to stretch and make him a third baseman, but he's probably a second baseman. That to me is interesting in, in and of itself. Like I understand the people that are out there saying, Hey, I think wake first baseman, Nick Kurtz should probably, and, and may probably be the, the first pick in the draft. I absolutely get that because as we were talking about with the white Sox earlier, not that weather not going to be whatever, maybe he's a star. Like, I don't know. I'm not saying he's not going to be, but it's a little easier to see the impact with the bat with a guy like Kurtz. I just think heading into the season that right there with one and two, with those two guys is fascinating enough. There's always these little narratives and these little stories to follow. And for me, that's what I'm starting to season with Joe. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people in the scouting in the organizational scouting community rooting right now for Vance Honeycutt rooting for Connor oh. Griffin yeah. rooting for eh, like Mike Sirota doesn't have the physical tools of the first two guys that I mentioned, but there are people that really want a definitive number one to come out of this. And if one doesn't show, it wouldn't surprise me if we went into the draft and, you know, let's say Connor Griffin is five or six or seven on boards. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't surprise me if he took a, you know, a $750,000 haircut to go one. Right. It just wouldn't. I mean, I, I don't see it. There's not a definitive one this year. 
I would. I would. I, I'll, t- I'll take that kind of a haircut. I mean, yeah. get out of here. You know, I mean, I'm only six feet and, you know, 187. I'm not six, four and 200 like Hunter Griffin, but I'll take that kind of, I'll take Honestly, a man, I'd take day three money. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Give me a uniform and I'll take it and retire. That's, yep. that's all I need. That's all I need. Uh, good stuff, man. Um, as always. And we actually see at the beginning of the show, I'm really bad at this at the beginning of the show. I estimated this is probably just going to be like an hour. This isn't going to be like an hour, 10 hour, 20. And here we are hour 20. So I'm going to apologize to, uh, to Joe, um, because I kept him a lot longer than I thought. Um, apologize to the missus for me. Um, I will. that's the, I'll yeah. blame it on you, but, but make sure you tell her you learned something today. Like you taught, but you okay. learned something. I can't, you, do you understand if I apologize to her and then lie to her, you're not making up any ground. You, you learned today that toad suck Arkansas was real. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah if she mm-hmm. sees toad sucking my cookies on my, on, on Google Chrome, <laughs> I'm going to be in trouble. Oh, that's beautiful. All right. We will, uh, we will, we will talk next week. It is opening day for the D one season next week. So we'll probably try and get, uh, uh, and get the show out on Thursday night next week if we can instead of uh, let's do a little Friday preview night. of doing. college yeah, baseball. Absolutely. Shoot, maybe we'll do it a day early. I don't know. I don't know what you're doing Wednesday, but maybe Wednesday's the day we try to do it. I'll check in with you. We'll see what we can do. We'll figure it out. Cool. Um, we'll, we'll talk next week. This has been the FSS Plus podcast. So just chill to the next episode.